When it comes to sports, history doesn't change, or does it? Come find out on the Special Teams Podcast, which is now available. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Mike Harmon. Together, Jason and I are looking back at the most compelling teams in sports history, why we rooted for them or against them as they achieved their title of best of the best. You'll remember the big moments and maybe become aware of some you didn't know. Each episode features a different team, and we just know you're going to love it. Check out Special Teams right now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, and it's backed by 24-7 protection. Like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Little Passports is the perfect holiday gift for that curious kid on your list. Brian, I love this service because with a subscription to Little Passports, kids get a fun-filled package every month designed to inspire their curiosity in geography, which we all need to be better at, I think, world cultures, or science. And it's great for kids of all ages. In fact, do you think they'd send a Little Passports uh, subscription to a 61-year-old? I don't know. Maybe they will. Order today for holiday delivery at littlepassports.com slash Katie. That's littlepassports.com slash K-A-T-I-E. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. I cannot believe, Brian, this year is coming to an end. In some ways, it seemed as if it would never be over like a bad movie, (laughs) if you know what I'm saying. In other ways... Time flies when you're having fun. And, Brian, the older you get, the faster time flies, it seems. Well, you're younger than springtime, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) Younger than springtime, are you? Gayer than laughter, are you? I promise we didn't plan this. (laughs) Anyway, as the year comes to a close, we're going to look back at the biggest names, the biggest moments, and the biggest trends of 2018. But there's too much to cram into one episode. So we're doing this in two parts, splitting up the year into five, count them, five different themes. On today's episode, we're starting by tackling the year in pop culture. We'll be chatting with Gia Tolentino of The New Yorker and Ira Madison of the podcast Keep It. Then we'll talk about LGBTQ issues with Dan Savage of the Savage Lovecast, among many other things, and Sarah McBride from the Human Rights Campaign. And finally, we'll get to talk about race with Jamel Bowie from Slate and Maria Inojosa from Latino USA. Next week, we're going to look back at the year in climate change and who better to do that with than Al Gore. And we're also going to have a chance to talk news and politics with Michael Barbaro from the Daily Podcast from The New York Times. We can't wait, but let's start with pop culture, which we all know, Brian, is your bread and butter. Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I love Regis Philbin, Frank Sinatra, you know, the hottest names of 2018. He really is on top of things, everyone. But as we mentioned, (laughs) we're talking to two cultural critics for this conversation. Gia Tolentino writes for The New Yorker. You might have read her masterpiece article on millennials earlier this year, or maybe her piece about Jewel, not the singer, the electronic cigarette. I like her because she's a UVA alum. Wahoo wah, everybody. Gia is definitely my favorite UVA alum. I 
am. I'm kidding, Katie. And then Ira Madison is here. He's the host of Crooked Media's pop culture podcast, which is called Keep It. He's also a writer on a new Netflix teen sci-fi dramedy called Daybreak, which is debuting next year. And no relation to Billy, apparently. So when Ira and Gia come into the studio, I swear to God, we hadn't been talking for three minutes when the biggest name of the year came up. Ariana Grande, of course. <laughs> Were you expecting me to say someone else, Brian? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was expecting you to say somebody whose name rhymes with Drumpf. I don't know, just me. <laughs> or Mitch McConnell or somebody in, yeah, your, yeah, in yeah. your book. Well, that's where we started with G and Ira, and they went crazy, by the way. And then we got to some other big names, big moments and big trends in pop culture from 2018. Listen, I know you've been following Ariana Grande very religiously on her Instagram feed. I've seen a lot of your likes on mine. Ariana fan, yeah. I want to say for the record that she's always been funnier than Pete. Really? Oh, yeah. Look on her Instagram. She has, she did this um, fake wildlife video in Australia when she was on tour, pitch perfect Australian accent. She's good. I, I haven't seen Prince on a few days, mate. You know what that means? Might be over for young Prince. You might be dead as, mate. <laughs> Let's talk about her a little bit more, and we're going to talk about other big names that we really witnessed in the pop culture landscape this year. Gosh, it's funny. People kind of come and go, don't they? But she's still white hot right mm-hmm. now. So let's talk about Ariana. Why is she, why does she have such a hold on people at this moment in time? She's funny. She's like Gia funny. said. You know, she's all—I thought the donut— licking incident was funny, too. She's been a hero to be since honest. she was slammed well, you, Really? Years ago. Because to me, that was so embarrassing. But you guys think that brought her a lot of street cred? I think as embarrassing young people ourselves, probably, we yeah. identified strongly with what it would be like to be drunk in a donut shop, try to eat a donut and say, I hate America at that particular stressful <laughs> point in time. You know? I've been a fan of Ariana since the first album, Yours Truly. Like, she, the thing about her is that she's been just slowly, her star's been slowly, slowly rising. She was pitched at the the beginning as, you know, sort of like baby Mariah Carey, which didn't really do her any favors. But they even had her do like a cover of Emotions. So she she has vocals. Right. Yeah, she's oh, not she's just so a talented. She's incredibly talented. Is she yeah. so little? How can that big voice come out of somebody <laughs> so know. little? Well, she you know the first couple albums you know it was it was very retro. Um, she kind of seemed like a songbird. She didn't enunciate very clearly at all. At all. <laughs> One of my old colleagues at Gawker wrote a post that was like, "Girl, Ariana, what are you even talking about, girl?" And, but on Sweetener, I mean, I love the album. I I think it's great too, and I love that she worked with. Um, Pharrell Williams mm-hmm. and Max Martin, uh, sort of like a throwback to the pop people that G and I probably grew up with. What up with this whole thing with Pete Davidson? <laughs> Help me understand this. So, so they got engaged after, you know, three months or something. And I think one of the reasons— I thought reasons, it was more like three weeks. Or something like that. It, and the reason why I think one of the reasons that it grabbed people's attention was that Ariana has had a wild year. You know, she had the Manchester bombing, and Pete Davidson has also had quite a life. I mean, his dad died in 9-11, and it's sort of this 
ultra-millennial, like, bonding based on trauma and sort of the perceived imminent end of the world, which is the thing hovering over all of pop culture in 2018. And also, you know, they're both really funny, and they both knew how to talk about their relationship in a way that— was more candid than you normally get out of people. It was destined to fail, but it seems like it was... Ex- <laughs> I was rooting for him. It, was, <laughs> it was accelerated by the death of her former boyfriend. Yeah, that was really sad. Can yeah. you tell to explain that to our listeners? Um, well, her former boyfriend was Mac Miller, um, who was a rapper that I really enjoyed. And also uh, someone that steadily got better and better and better. I didn't always like him, but by the end... Yeah, yeah really like legit. his last album was yeah. like fantastic. Um, he's a person who struggled with, you know, addiction issues um, over the years. And once this relapse happened, um, I think that was just one more trauma tossed into Ariana's life. The opioid crisis has come to music. Really, you know, Tom Petty, Prince, Mac Miller, and Lil Peep all died from fentanyl overdoses. That's a lot. Okay, we're going to take a bit of a turn, and we're going to talk about somebody else with a lot going on in 2018, Kylie Jenner, who was, among other things, (laughs) on the cover of Forbes for being— Self-made. Yeah. Potentially, yeah, quote, (laughs) self-made youngest billionaire. So is she self-made? Uh, not by my definition. She scratched that lotto ticket. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think coming from incredible family wealth does not negate being hardworking and having a extremely sharp instinct, as all those women do, for what how you can monetize identity and beauty and female personhood in, in this age. I, I think people often mistake, I worked hard for I'm self-made, and to me, those are quite different. Especially since her brand is just sort of herself. It seems like, oh, all of this came from her person. But it's like, you wouldn't... It is true, but you also wouldn't put, like, a Rockefeller on Forbes and say that they're self-made. Let's talk about some other bold-faced names that got a lot of attention this year. Donald Glover. I mean, Childish Gambino. He, to me, had such a breakthrough moment. I mean, he was obviously making a lot of noise. People were noticing Atlanta. But this brought him to a new level, didn't it, Ira? Yeah, I mean, there was Atlanta. It was the This Is America. I've listened to his music before, and, you know, a lot of it was sort of sound cloudy. Yeah, um, he's also getting better. Yeah, he's, he's um, that's the theme with a lot of artists this year, actually. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they've been getting better. This was, you know, just sort of him dipping into soul music a bit more and... It just really came out in a time when, you know, people were willing to talk about politics and music and also and race. But also the video um, is just so vivid and grim and... I don't personally love the video. I don't, but I don't I don't like it when when stuff is I mean, everyone is hungry for stuff that's of the moment, but yeah. it's so on the nose. Having said that, it did make such a huge impression. Absolutely. I mean, it was everywhere. You couldn't avoid it. Why did that catch such fire at that moment in time in your view, Ira? It's made for people to talk about it. You know, it's him shooting um other black people in the video. It's him shooting. wearing Confederate-style yeah. trousers, um, right? And some of the symbolism. I think people enjoy when they have to kind of peel away some of these things that are not necessarily 
overt or mm-hmm. too obvious. Yeah. And I think people had fun kind of looking for the hidden meaning, some not hidden, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, the horse, the person on the horse riding by and all those other things. I mean, it's the reason why Drake songs are so popular, too. You know, like you have to capitalize on the fact that there is so much content now. And if you make a song, if you make a music video that people can dissect online, it's going to help your song be better and sort of wade through and you know with such a violent video like that and then you put some imagery in there um people were going to be talking about it another performance that really captured people's imaginations this year was beyonce's at coachella Ooh. Can you talk a little bit about that? How much time do we have? Yeah, why was that so meaningful? Well, I'm from Texas. I'm from Houston. You know, first time I saw Destiny's Child was at the rodeo in seventh grade. So, you know, I've I've been there from the beginning. I saw them at the uh, uh, Milwaukee Summerfest. It was great. Hell yeah. (laughs) Uh, I was at Beachella, and it was... (laughs) I'm I'm feeling it now, just talking about it. I mean, she's the first black woman to ever headline Coachella. That's wild. How did it take so long? It's also weird because, you know, I was never a big Coachella person before. Yeah. And, you know, well, just, actually, yeah, well, that's why. Well, yeah. And looking looking <laughs> back, on the whitest the, place. I know, right? Yeah. It was always just the whitest place. Yeah, but so then, wide, you know, yeah. I feel like when Kanye performed a few years ago, yeah. like they started shifting more towards like hip hop acts and things and less white people playing music in the desert. So one of the reasons it was so extraordinary was that Beyonce didn't do it on Coachella's terms, right? She did it all on her terms. She put on, she was sort of like performing musicology in real time. She, one of the things that's extraordinary about her is that the way, you know, she was really dismissed early in her career as just kind of producing generic pop stuff. But here you see in a set like this, she is reinterpreting all of these old, old, old songs in the language of a New Orleans second line, in the language of, you know, of like Houston, Texas, like chopped and screwed, dirty rap. It's like she is making this this long line of tradition that she has been working within come alive, and she did it so beautifully. It seems to me that she and Jay-Z have really mastered the art of being famous. You know, she's the only person who could take over Vogue magazine and have full editorial control. Do you see any danger in her power? Well, I don't think any celebrity should be able to take over, get editorial control over a magazine, but it does seem to be the way that we're headed. Yeah. Uh, you know, Oprah's interview with Michelle Obama, you know, and like Elle, you know, it seems right. like we're, we're seeing geared a lot of towards celebrities interviewing, interviewing each celebrities. other. And there was like, the, one of the worst ones was like Emma Stone and Jennifer Lawrence. They were just like, oh my God, you're so pretty. You're it was, so it pretty. Was, it was no, like, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, you know, actually, they this is why their friends. Text messages. It's just like the old interview <laughs> magazine model. Do you remember Andy yeah. Warhol's well, magazine? An interview has yes. a place, right? Because they, they would do it at a certain angle, right? Like they would, they would get, they would match people up in a ways that sometimes, you know, those, those conversations would be interesting. But isn't it important version. to have editorial control Absolutely. and an editorial yeah. voice so that celebrities don't take over the world? Yeah. I felt like a good version of that was Timothy Chalamet being interviewed by um, Harry Styles. Sure, yeah. It's you a know, little bit at an angle. It was, yes, it was like they're both in a certain space in pop culture, and we benefited from hearing them talk to each other. Another person who seemed to have a huge year was Tiffany Haddish. Oh, Yeah. God bless. Mm, I love Tiffany. I love her, too. She ready. (laughs) (laughs) She's amazing. Yeah. Why do you think that she burst onto the scene in such a huge way? Comedy was sort of needing a voice like hers. Some people have tried to lodge a complaint, you know, that, like, 
oh, she's almost the same in every she movie. Is. But that's what people want. You We've know? let the, people do that yeah. before, and it can work yeah. if they're, we like them. Yeah. The entire Hollywood <laughs> studio system was built yeah. on you know exactly what you're going to get from a Gene Kelly movie. We've gone from big names, and now we want to just talk about some big moments sure. of the year. One was Oprah and her, her Time's Up Me Too speech at the Golden Globes. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men. Was that as significant as people are making it out to be? I don't know. I mean, I'd almost forgotten she gave, gave that speech yeah. until now. Um, I think that it didn't have that much impact within the overall Me Too movement. You don't think movement. a new day is on the horizon? For my money, you know, I, I hate award shows. I, I don't watch them. For my money, the most impactful moment at an award show was Frances McDormand introducing the world to the concept of the inclusion writer. Which nobody mm-hmm. uses. Which people Still. are starting to use, though. They are? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Michael B. Jordan's company uses it. Women are writing th- things, clauses about nudity in their contracts. Uh-huh, like that's true. There, there is stuff, there is, like, that structural sort of legal protection is ramping up, and that to me means a lot more than whatever rhetoric someone says at a speech you know, at an award show that'll get re-aggregated everywhere for three days, and then everyone will forget about it, honestly. You've, you've written so much, Gia, about Me Too and Time's Up, and now Time's Up has a new CEO, Lisa Borders, who came from the WNBA. Uh, a lot of people in art, business, and media have lost their jobs mm-hmm. and been banished. And I'm curious, have you seen the movement go from activism to activation? Because I keep waiting for concrete things that are happening in sort of a a bunch of arenas, and I don't really see it. I do think that, for me, always the question about Me Too, which is, again, you know, started by Toronto Burke a long time before this last year. There's been so much conversation about what's going to happen to these men. There's been so much focus about these men's Can attempt, they make a comeback? attempts to make a comeback and their feelings over the past year. And to me, it obscures the fact that, you know, like, women couldn't get credit cards on their own until the 70s, right? Like, we are still a long way away from change that will feel satisfying. We are still in the cycle of backlash. Like, you know, the Kavanaugh confirmation was, I think, partly a response to Me to the fact that Republican support for him went up during the hearing means a lot. And so uh, from the beginning, I've just tried, you know, as a young person who always expected that I would be equal and has over the last few years been realizing that mo- a lot of the country doesn't, you know, want things to be that way. I know. Which, isn't that a sad revelation? It is I, a sad I, I, revelation. I've experienced that <laughs> but, I'm, but I feel lucky to have been to be young enough that I grew up expecting it, which not is not the case for a lot of older generations. And I've just tried to remember that Change is going to be slow. It's always it's always been slow. It's always been uneven. And you have to keep your foot on the gas. You got to keep your foot on the gas. And to me, you know, like what what matters, the things that the media ends up talking about with Me Too is not, again, where the change happens. The change happens in different language and contracts. And the change happens in HR meetings. And the change happens in hiring. Well, isn't it progress that a lot of bad actors have gotten fired and the message has sort of gone out that this yeah. behavior is unacceptable sure, and you but, will be fired? But I think we're seeing, again, I think we're seeing the backlash. And again, you know, what happens to to People who have done things that are wrong is not that important to me. What's important is the structures that are in place to make 
to make things more equal within the institution that those people got kicked out of, right? Particularly because, you know, so many people like a Louis C.K. or something get to come back because, one— they're successful and, you know, they're within still this echo chamber of a fan base who will support them no matter what they do. And, you know, a lot of people in the industry talk about how much time do we have to wait for this person to be out of the spotlight before they come back. And I think as long as people keep focusing on that instead right. of changing things, um, Hollywood is just – it's really just sort of an ebb and flow right now. I don't think anything really – structural is happening aside from the way that we are talking about. So but we're talk- still talking about it, and yeah. that's a good yeah. thing. So let's talk about Kanye in the Oval Office with President mm-hmm. Trump. You know, people expect that if you're black, you have to be Democrat. I have, a, uh, I've, I've have conversations that basically said that welfare is the reason why a lot of black people end up being Democrat. They say, you know, that first of all— That was a big moment. What did you make of it? Uh. <laughs> I've been I've been of the opinion very strongly for the last ever since social media happened is that you know I mean I think we'd all be better off if we made celebrity opinions matter much less. Um it's interesting it's like this year has been just like the it's the it's the revision of the Kanye Taylor VMAs feud where Con, where Taylor finally spoke up about politics, urged people to vote, urged them to vote for a democrat. But then Kanye ended up in the White House talking, you know, wearing a MAGA hat. And to me it was like Maybe we shouldn't look to celebrities for our for our. It's also the politics. fun hypocrisy of it too, because you know it's the conservatives on the right are often talking about how they don't want celebrities chiming in on politics, but it's usually just when celebrities are telling people to vote for uh, Democrats. Democrats. Uh, as soon as a celebrity hops over and wants to, you know, wear a MAGA hat, um, then we should be listening to that celebrity's opinion. But now and he's disavowed Donald Trump. Yeah, because he was in a manic episode, and uh-huh. then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really regretful. Kanye has fallen off harder than any. I mean, Kanye is one of the best producers like one of those influential musicians of this era. And this new album that he put out is awful. And and his his work got bad and everything else got bad at the same time. And to me, the when he went to the White House, it didn't mean anything because, again, like I try not to think that it means like hanging on to every single word that Kanye said about politics at any point is never going to be particularly helpful to the discourse or anything. If you've been a fan of Kanye, you know that he has never really been great on issues of politics, you know, on um, even misogyny uh, towards black women in his music and things. And it's just sort of once he came to this place, it was sort of expected. It's sort of exactly what 2018 (laughs) promised us with celebrities. Like, there's a direct line between Beyonce taking control of Vogue and Kanye sort of putting himself out there in front of everyone because I think that he was, you know, trying to manically control his own image and, you know, fix the fact that, you know, creatively um, he was a bit in a slump. There is a direct line also to Kim Kardashian, you know, got Alice Johnson released from prison, right? And and it's like all of this is happening on an individual charisma celebrity-based situation where this is like not helpful. We should be speaking broadly about what happens, needs to happen with criminal justice reform instead of Kim Kardashian marching in and getting clemency for one person. I mean, it's just such a distraction from the actual actual basis of change. But having said that, you know, I think that certainly so many celebrities have felt compelled in this this Trump, 
you know, environment we're living in to speak out on female empowerment, to speak out about gun violence. And in a way, I think they're, they've been a very powerful force to spur and motivate and galvanize a whole segment of the population to get more involved in these issues. And we issues. saw in the election results that gun lobby isn't nearly as powerful a factor as it used to be in elections. I mean, maybe all the voices speaking out on that issue had some effect. So is it positive in some ways? Sure, yeah. Uh, I think it's positive if you're using your voice to talk about voting and, you know, gun control and um, people who are talking about about voter suppression and things like that. But I think, as Gia said, you know, like a spectacle of I'm showing up to the White House and getting one thing done isn't really helpful to anybody. And right. it really just creates a lot of noise and people arguing back and forth. And as you know, you can live by the tweet and die by the tweet as Roseanne Barr uh, tragically showed <laughs> us in 2018. Was that I a mean, tragedy? I think it was tragic that, A, she felt the way she felt, that she said yeah. the se- things she said. Also, you know? it occupied so much space in the news cycle, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I agree with that. We Ira. talked about that for months. And, and it's like, why? <laughs> it's one person's horrible. I mean, you know, even the fact it's good that Roseanne got called out on what she said, but even that swallowed so much air. I think people need to make sure before they press send that they really consider what they're saying or what they're doing. Case in point, you know, Megyn Kelly. There was a controversy on The Real Housewives of New York with Luann as she dresses Diana Ross and she made her skin look darker than it really is. And people said that that was racist. And I don't know. I felt like who doesn't love Diana Ross? She wants to look like Diana Ross for one day. I, I don't know how like that got racist on Halloween. It's not like it, she's walking around. I, I have general. not seen it. But you, it sounds you a have racist one. Now, it wasn't on social media, but social media was what drummed up the opposition to end her talk show. Which is funny, you know, because she had said that when she was on Fox, nothing would have happened. Yeah, she said that. I mean, (laughs) also it seems like— That's the irony of Megyn Kelly? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, she'd been saying she'd said way more racist stuff than that. Yeah, Sarah's right. Uh, For years. The the problem was that she Talking about victims of of police violence. Yeah. When John Oliver did that mashup of all the things that she had said on Fox before her show even debuted— I thought, wow, you do have to wonder, did NBC look at her work before hiring her? You know, her? they wanted her to be a provocateur. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted, you know, and she is. But the thing is, but I mean— how can you be a provocateur at 9 o'clock in the morning? That's they, what I'm you saying. do not mm-hmm. want a that's provocateur I mean, in her, morning television. Trust me, I know this. <laughs> her, well, her energy, her energy, which was useful on Fox News, because she was the reasonable one, you know, in, relative to Fox News. And she, her energy is that of a prosecutor. Like, she, she's not a good listener. That hour— was successful before she joined Nofer. Um, and it was just sort of weird to think that people— And it was two African-American who, hosts, by yeah, the way. Yeah, Tamron Hall, who Al Roker. Both, who were both paid less combined than yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, was, everybody on that, sh- uh, on right. that show I, I mean, I think they, hi- they hired her for just this wild contract yeah. that I— uh, it was just I think weird it's because she think. was on the cover of Vanity Fair, and she was the new shiny object it girl. Yeah. True, yeah, but yeah. I think it was always weird to think that, you know— um, viewers of that morning show were ever going to go for her brand of Fox. You know, otherwise they would be watching Fox. Fox. Well, we can't talk about big moments of the year without talking about the royal wedding, which on one level— I don't know. I just got two—four eye rolls. Yeah, (laughs) but I'm going to defend the royal wedding for a second. On one level, it was a traditional royal wedding. On another level, it was revolutionary because you had a divorced black American actress— 
being warmly embraced and accepted by the most traditional hidebound institution, perhaps, in the world outside of maybe the Saudis. Has he melted any skepticism? Well, you know, Philip's sister was a Nazi. I mean, like, there, there is Nazism. <laughs> had a in... number of relatives. Are you saying there was, ar- there was already diversity in the royal family? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, like, there. I'm not sure. I mean, sure. It's, like, Meghan Markle, I think she's, like, immensely, like, adorable and charismatic. I looked her on Suits. I watched it. <laughs> yeah, um, I personally can't get behind, like, something like a royal wedding ever being anything, like, revolutionary because of how I feel about institutions and weddings, but Meghan Markle is incredibly charming. And, you know, I hope that the, you know, whatever member of the family that wore that, you know, like Sambo brooch to, you oh, know. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that was bad. But I think that, look, the royal family reflects the culture. They're not going to lead the culture. And it says something very good about the culture that this is where they felt they had to be when Harry decided to marry her. And let's sure. face it, my favorite moment was when the choir sang Stand By Me yeah. and they just did not know what to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I thought the wedding was beautiful. Beautiful. I love a wedding. I enjoy the fact that it was a somewhat nice fairy tale story for us to talk about in They've the news this year. Great chemistry, I'll yeah. say. Like I uh, appreciate that. But you know, yeah, there's still Nazis connected to the and, family. And she'll, you know, and she'll never and, be able to go outside with bare legs, no pantyhose, you know, or skirt above the knee again. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's it's a mixed bag. I don't know becoming that it's a princess. quite that bad. It but is yes. actually. Yeah. yeah, she can't ever wear. She she's got to wear pantyhose. She can't wear skirts oh, God, above the knee. I wouldn't marry him for that reason. <laughs> you alone. know what I mean? Like she she's actually making. A, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a and it's a sacrifice. Haunted by the ghosts of colonialism. <laughs> but listen, know. maybe she will be able to usher in more change. I agree. Yeah, and she and she's been a little. Um, she's spoken out. She's about, spoken out about certain things. It's great. And so, yay, yeah. Megan. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Let, let's and give the Queen her some of time. Loves her, and I love that. Yeah. I like, I like that <laughs> photo of them laughing together. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really cute. All right, we've got to go over some big themes of 2018. One big theme is diversity in movies. You know, we had Crazy Rich Asians, which I hated personally. I thought it was so <laughs> dumb. We have Black Panther, which I can't was believe that was this year. It feels like it was. I know, ago. I know. Is that crazy? Love Simon, Call Me by Your Name. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that we're starting? to open up in terms of our expectations and movies? And how did you feel about all those kind of steps? Seeing the change toward diversity is feeling less like people really feeling like we need to include more voices and more like, how can we make money make, at the box how, office? How can we make money at the box office, but also turn existing things that we already do into money makers? You know, it's Well, this weird. is a real like, myth buster, yeah. though, because there was this idea for a long time, oh, a black person can't lead a movie, an Asian person can't headline a movie. You know, there was a sort of an economic excuse that people made, which turns out is totally false. And thank God that this year busted that open. I will say, I mean, one thing, like, I I didn't love Crazy Rich Asians either, but, you know, like, one of the things we need, you know, every film doesn't have to be Moonlight, like a genius (laughs) masterpiece. Like, we need to let, there's so many, like, you know, kind of -of run-of-the-mill rom-coms. We need to let some of them not have mm. only white people in it, or you know, and it's. I and love that Crazy Rich Asians got to just be like a goofy yeah, rom com, but like, also there should be many of them so that everyone's not hanging their hopes on this movie being a success. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so another theme this year is reboots. What's old is new oh. again. 
Yeah. Will and Grace, Murphy uh, Brown, A Star is Born. She is going, uh, <laughs> Sabrina the Teenage Witch is coming yeah, back. Yeah, how can we monetize this IP forever? Yes. Well, it is kind of, does it speak to uh, the lack of original, new original ideas no, that I we have it, to keep going back to the well? Oh, well, I think part of it, you know, movies have to do well I- internationally now to mm-hmm. make, to turn a profit. And that's so, why there's so many action movies right. with little dialogue, exactly. right? And, you know, it's literally like, how can we maximize the money we have off of our IP by rebooting everything? Like, in, you know, The slightly. Lion King's coming back. Well, that I'm excited about. Yeah, yeah. me too. I mean, Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the cast is incredible. <laughs> but, you know, I think, like, the era of, like, the all-female reboot is pretty tired to me. It was pretty tired from the beginning. Well, how do you feel about Murphy Brown coming back? <sighs> Snore? I didn't, I didn't watch it. Hey, I was it. on yeah. it. Watch it. I didn't get shot. I was brilliant. We'll watch yours. I was brilliant. Please check yeah, yeah, yeah. me out. Uh, but Star you know, Born was good, though. Yeah. Now, I guess Born. it depends on the product, right? You know, I mean, with all of these things, right, you can do, you can reinvent something for the sake of market performance. You can have a craven, but ultimately, you know, like well intentioned you know, rationale. Or you can have the like kind of dutiful, we should be woke now, we should be diverse. Both of those things are not, they ring hollow, they ring a little more hollow to an audience than the real reason for reinventing someone, which is like the Bradley, the Bradley Cooper reason for reinventing Starsborn, because like, let's do it again for a deep, deep story and character-based reason. Let's talk about Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. It seems to me this was a year where people, because of these tragedies, people were starting to talk about mental health, mental illness and suicide, and people were starting to be a little more forthcoming and honest about their own emotional demons. Do you agree? I do. You know, I think that sad as those events were, they got a lot of people talking about how we view celebrity culture and how, you know, social media has sort of put people's emotions bare. Um, And it's, you know, you're still sort of seeing how a celebrity can have what you think is a perfect life that they're showing you out there. But seeing so much stuff um, just everywhere might, it depresses people. I think that has gotten a lot of people online talking about mental health and how social media affects us. And I think, you know, the Bourdain situation in Kate Spade then also got us talking, you know, about suicide as well. Yeah, I think what I always wish for, you know, people will post the suicide hotline after these things. And what I want is for that organization to be better funded. You know, I mean, because like at, at some point, openness is only as helpful as the resources that are available to people when they're in crisis. And we are seeing that get tripped away at it, you know, in budgets and, you know, like the general sort of state of healthcare um, and how hard it is to get for so many people, um, you know, because talking about it is one thing, getting the help that people need and that often doesn't isn't enough to save people but it we need people to all have access to it it's and that's inter- what i hope is the next it's step. been interesting for me to see people like michael phelps uh get involved with these online therapy yeah. apps and it feels like people are much more open to saying, you know, I'm kind of fucked up. We also, ironically, have this epidemic of loneliness, despite the fact that we're more connected and on our phones more than ever before. I don't think it's ironic. I mean, I think that's, I mean, this is what social media does. It promises connection, but it only induces alienation. And (laughs) I I like that. I'm going to use that as my quote card on Monday. I mean, yeah, I think (laughs) on Instagram. But I mean, (laughs) that is ironic. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not, it's not ironic. It's not, it's not uh, like a strange coincidence. 
coincidence. It's because these platforms are not honest about what they do yet. Well, okay. let's, before we go, let's talk about 2019 and your predictions Ooh. for the new year. Ooh. What do you think we're going to be talking about? Uh, we'll be talking about the election, definitely. Um, do you think we'll be talking about Time's Up Me Too continuing to make progress or kind of fading out? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are too many people that are invested in this changing. Um, but, I, you know, I do think that the backlash against, you know, this year of listening to women, literally just a year, I think it may intensify. Um, and I think— there's a lot that might get worse. The, you know, this time, though, it makes it really hard. I don't know if you guys have found it, but it makes it really hard to see into the future. Like, the future just seems very, I mean, every week Scary. is just so unpredictable and jarring and often, like, deeply traumatizing mm -hmm. that, you know, like, when you can expect X number of shootings within the next month, you know, I think it's very hard to even imagine what a year from now will look like. Like, I'm glad, but I am already glad for whatever albums, and you know, and movies, like, Good Get escapist fund. Yeah. yeah. But you're right, in the face of gun violence and climate change, some of this seems a little Well, silly. you know, yeah, and, and I talk, I interview, like, teenagers a lot for my job because I, you know, and I think it's a really interesting time to be a young person and a really hard one because they're like, what, how are we going to grow up in this? And I, I don't know. <laughs> well, hopefully there'll be some positive developments yeah, I hope in so. 2019 in sort of all aspects of yeah. our lives. <laughs> yeah. That we can celebrate a year from now. Yeah, yeah hopefully. So hopefully. Well, Gia and Ira, thank you guys so much for coming. It was really fun to talk to you. Thank you for having yeah. me. Thanks so thank much. Thank you. It's time for a quick break. And coming up, we're going to be talking about the biggest names, moments, and trends in LGBTQ issues this year. And then later in the show, we're going to be talking about race. We'll be right back. Brian, how did you sleep last night? Well, Katie, I slept very well because the sheets I was sleeping on were very, very comfortable. Were they from Bowl and Branch, perchance? How did you guess? They were from Bowl and Branch because everything they make, from bedding to blankets, is made from pure 100% organic cotton, which starts out super soft and it gets even softer over time. Plus, my favorite part, by the way, do you think our listeners might be gathering that I'm a little on the cheap side? Flinty? <laughs> frugal? You, you can buy directly from them, so you're essentially paying wholesale prices. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews, and Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company are all talking about them. Try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, you can send them back and get a refund. Shipping is even free, but I doubt you'll want to send them back. To get you started, right now our listeners get $50 off your first set of sheets at bowlandbranch.com, promo code Katie. Go to bowlandbranch.com for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's bowl. B-O-L-L, not B-O-W-L, B-O-L-L, and branch.com, promo code Katie. Bolandbranch.com, promo code Katie. Now let's get back to the show. In 2018, we saw huge milestones for the LGBTQ community, but we also saw an administration that was hostile in many ways to that community and wanted to roll back rights and protections. Honestly, Brian, I would say it was a decidedly mixed bag. Well, I agree with you on that, Katie. Here to talk to us about what happened on this front in 2018 are Dan Savage and Sarah McBride. Dan has been a guest on this show before, and a terrific one, I might add. He's the host of Savage Lovecast and writes a weekly internationally syndicated column called Savage Love. 
He's also been an advocate for the gay community for a very long time, including when he started the amazing It Gets Better campaign back in 2010. I love Dan. I also love Sarah McBride. She's just 28 years old, and she's had an incredible life. She came out as transgender when she was at American University, where she was the student body president. She then went on to become an advocate for her community and was the first trans person to speak at a national convention when she spoke at the DNC in Philadelphia. Now she's the national press secretary for the Human Rights Campaign and the author of a really moving memoir called Tomorrow Will Be Different. Sarah and Dan, super jazzed to have you both on the podcast, and we have a lot to cover about 2018 and what it meant for LGBTQ people. Let's start by talking about some of the biggest names that surfaced in 2018. Let me start with you, Sarah. Beth Ford, why was she so significant? Well, Beth Ford was the first openly gay woman uh, to run a Fortune 500 company, which was a huge advancement for LGBTQ representation in major companies. Obviously, Tim Cook is an incredible, inspiring example over at Apple. And it's, it's a reflection of the fact that LGBTQ people are increasingly rising to the top of their respective fields. And when you have openly LGBTQ people in the C-suite, openly LGBTQ people uh, running companies, it doesn't just send a a great signal to future generations of LGBTQ corporate leaders, but it also changes the corporate environment. Not just companies, but they're now running states, specifically Jared Polis, who is the governor-elect of Colorado, Dan. We prove that we're an inclusive state that values every contribution, regardless of someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. I read a tweet that said the state where a baker refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple has just elected a gay governor. What was your reaction to that election, Dan? Uh, I was thrilled uh, by Jared Polis's election uh, that night. I wish uh, it had been matched with Stacey Abrams' election in Georgia, Andrew Gillum's election in Florida. Uh, we don't want to leave Kate Brown off this list, though. She's the governor of Oregon, and she was appointed when the previous governor had to resign. Uh, but Kate Brown is bisexual and out and was elected in her own right for the first time uh, governor of Oregon. So there were two big firsts for LGBT people uh, in the gubernatorial front uh, this election and speaking of bisexuals, <laughs> Kirsten Cinema was was elected the senator from Arizona, and she's going to be the first uh, bisexual senator, at least openly bisexual senator. Yeah, and she was one of the bright spots in the U.S. Senate uh, for pro equality candidates. She ran a a really competitive, difficult race in a in a tough state, and and pulled it out. Uh, she'll join Tammy Baldwin as now the second openly LGBTQ United States senator. She was in the U.S. House prior to. Uh, and she is a a fierce and um, energetic uh, public figure. So I think she's going to be a really interesting person to watch in the United States Senate. It's a positive development that people who are open about their sexuality and about their gender identification are now being elected to office. I mean, that's it, there's something to cheer about 
this is it, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the last election, everyone talks about the blue wave and the pink wave, and those were massive waves. But there was also a rainbow wave yes. of uh, a record number of, of openly LGBTQ members of the House of Representatives come January, uh, of LGBTQ people getting elected to state legislatures and city councils across the country. We now have added, in addition to Danica Rome, who was elected in 2017 in the Commonwealth of Virginia, we Woo! now have My Go state. Virginia. We <laughs> now have three more transgender people who've been elected. Two in New Hampshire. They have a large state house, but they'll have two trans women. And then in Colorado, they'll now have an openly transgender person in their state house. So let's talk about some of the biggest moments this year uh, related to LGBTQ issues, not all of which are encouraging, but some of them are. One of them um, in the former category is the Department of Health and Human Services changing the legal uh, definition of sex. The quote is, the agency's proposed definition would define sex as either male or female, unchangeable, and determined by the genitals that a person is born with. Um, What's your reaction to that? Well, this is sadly not a surprising uh, development, and it's obviously a report that was in the New York Times just two weeks before uh, the last election. But it's a reflection of actions, individual actions this administration has taken over the last two years of trying to roll back our progress when it comes to the growing legal consensus that LGBTQ people are protected under federal civil rights laws. Um, Because at the end of the day, if you're discriminating against someone because of their gender identity or their sexual orientation, you're discriminating against them because of gender stereotypes, which is illegal sex discrimination. And so just a couple weeks after taking office, the Trump-Pence administration rescinded guidance promoting the protection of transgender students under that principle. They have, in different agencies, sought to roll back similar protections. They filed briefs in front of the Uh, federal courts that uh, assert that they don't believe federal civil rights laws protect LGBTQ workers and students and patients. So this is an incredibly dangerous action. Uh, It's not surprising that they're considering doing it more broadly. Uh, And it would have, in some cases, life and death consequences for LGBTQ people. And let's talk about another decision the Trump administration made, which was to include same-sex partners on the 2020 census but not to do a thorough accounting of LGBTQ people. Uh, Dan, when you saw that, did you think this is kind of a mixed bag or worse than that? It definitely is a mixed bag. And it reinforces, you know, a a negative kind of meme or idea or concept that only uh, same-sex, only queer people who are married matter. Only people in same-sex relationships who have married uh, are important or should be counted or recognized. Uh, And that's just not true. And, it, the, the biggest concern that I have, even as a queer person about the census, is the question uh, that they've added to it to ask people whether they're citizens or not, which is going to result in undercounting uh, a great number of people who are afraid to have that question put to them um, because they're undocumented or because they're undocumented people perhaps living in their house or they've undocumented family members. Uh, and it's going to result in an undercount, and it's going to result in undercounts in places where Queer people tend to live in greater numbers, and so it's going to negatively impact, you know, how we're represented, whether we're legal or illegal immigrants ourselves or not, and there are queer, illegal, and undocumented immigrants. And that's the real threat to the census, in my opinion. What about on a state level? What happened this year, say, in Massachusetts and in North Carolina? 
So Massachusetts had a really critical race for for transgender people. Um, it became the the first state in the nation where trans protections, separate from protections based on sexual orientation, were on the ballot for a public vote. And let me just start by saying it's outrageous when a minority group's rights are ever on the ballot for a popular vote. It was absurd during the marriage equality referenda, and it was absurd in Massachusetts. But opponents of equality mustered up enough signatures to put protections for transgender people in public spaces on the ballot. Those are restaurants, hospitals, uh, grocery stores, parks, public transportation, and of course, bathrooms within those spaces. You know, we were nervous because in a lot of other places like Houston, for instance, a couple of years ago, voters have either just barely or actually ended up rescinding protections for for transgender people when they've been put on the ballot. But fortunately, Massachusetts voters came out in November on question three and by a two-to-one margin voted yes on three to uphold those protections, which I think was was really positive nationally because if they had won in Massachusetts, which was certainly possible, it would have emboldened their efforts in other states to try to put trans equality on the, on the ballot. So we were really fortunate to win there. But then there were some really significant results for trans equality in in other states. North Carolina is a situation where obviously Pat McCrory in 2016 lost the governor's race in large part because of HB2, the bill that tried to ban trans people from restrooms consistent with our gender identity. The new governor signed into into law a bill that took away some parts of that bill but still kept in place a ban on localities passing protections for transgender people in restrooms um, statewide. So it's there's still an issue so there. So basically saying you couldn't pass laws protecting trans people from using the bathroom that that was consistent with their gender identity. Right. They took away the affirmative mandate to discriminate, but kept in place the uh, a ban on, on localities protecting LGBTQ people from discrimination, um, and specifically trans people in bathrooms perpetually. Um, In Texas, though, they had a bathroom bill that didn't pass, but the five main sponsors ended up losing re-election this past cycle. Voters are coming forward and they're saying, this is absurd that you were trying to ban transgender people from restrooms. It's absurd you're spending your time and energy trying to do this. We'd much rather have elected officials who represent the interests of everyone and who focus on issues that matter, not some made-up bathroom predator myth. Well, there's an interesting parallel to the marriage equality movement where it was put onto the ballot in many states and we lost and we lost and we lost until we won. And what you saw with the the losses on marriage equality when there were votes was the needle moving closer and closer and closer. That the more we had this discussion, the more we had this debate, the more people came around and changed their positions. And on queer rights, what we often or almost invariably see is people coming around to supporting queer rights. So it's a it's kind of this you know, exploding cigar that right-wing bigots keep lighting and sticking in their own mouths. Like, oh, we're going to force this onto a ballot. Oh, we're going to have a vote. And yeah, they win a few of those until they don't. It is, I agree with Sarah, 100% a debate we should not have to have. The rights of a minority should never be put onto the ballot and subject to a popular vote. Um, Our rights are sacrosanct and should be protected. Uh, That said, this strategy of theirs has proved in the long run to be a disaster for their side. And Dan, you know, Sarah and I both attended the service where Matthew Shepard's remains were interred at Washington National Cathedral. And in a way, this 20-year anniversary of Matthew's horrific, brutal death was a good reminder of how gay people were treated just 20 years ago. 
it was profoundly moving for me personally, I think, because I've gotten to know Judy and Dennis Shepard very well mm-hmm. over the years, and I covered that story. And I, I'm curious how you felt about that moment. Well, I was, of course, tremendously moved and then tremendously heartbroken uh, to to learn, and I, and I wasn't aware of this, that for the last 20 years, uh, Matthew Shepard's parents had been afraid to uh, inter him anywhere because they believed that his gravesite would attract uh, bigots and, and would be defaced. And that for 20 years, they felt that they couldn't lay Matthew to rest in a public space was really heartbreaking. And, you know, as a, you know, a gay guy myself who grew up in a religious family, what kind of blew my mind most about it was they found a safe space for his remains, and it was a church, because a church was the last place I ever felt safe. Uh, particularly when I was Matthew's age, I didn't feel safe in churches. So that was sort of a mind-blowing, unexpected development in that case, um, and, and really very healing. I have to say, though, that you know this isn't just how gay people were treated 20 years ago, that there are still uh, gay people and lesbians and bisexual people and trans people who are attacked and murdered today. Just That's a couple a of years point. ago, a, yeah. a gay man was shot on the face on a street corner in Manhattan by an anti-gay bigot who had come into town specifically for that purpose to, to, to find a gay person and harm them. What was even more moving was the first gay Episcopal bishop actually presided over the service and delivered the homily and talked very candidly about his experience. And he, he's so wonderful. So I have three things I want to say to Matt. Gently rest in this place. You are safe now. Oh, yeah. And Matt, welcome home. I'm in. He is amazing. Gene Robinson is just one of the most kindest, most compassionate people. I love him. I've ever met. Um, and and it's it's interesting, and I think not all surprising, that the first moments where he teared up during um, his remarks before his homily was when he talked about how he knows so many people in that space, so many LGBTQ people in that cathedral had been harmed and traumatized by the church, but that they were welcomed and they were home. So he addressed what you were yeah. talking about, Dan, head on. And it was really mm-hmm. quite remarkable to see and to hear. At the same time as this extraordinary service happened, We've also seen over the course of 2018 a disturbing increase in hate crimes directed at LGBTQ people um, as well as racial minorities and religious minorities. One instance of this that struck me was the murder of Blaise Bernstein, who's a student who was a student at Penn. He was gay and Jewish and targeted by a member of a neo-Nazi group who also happened to be a former classmate of his in Orange County. Um, Dan, what do you attribute this increase in hate crimes to? And this is for both of you. What can we all do about it? I attribute it to the great disinhibitor, which is Donald Trump. Um, He has given people license to act out on their worst impulses. He's legitimized hatred in the public square. And he has brought to a boil people's worst instincts and impulses, you know, really brought the worst out of the worst. It's incredibly distressing. 
Uh, and Donald Trump uh, deserves to have the blame for the spike in hate crimes laid at his feet. And the entire Republican Party and punditry class of the Republican Party, all of them should be held accountable for what they have done to our democracy, for the for the poisons that they have pumped into our body politic. Do you agree, Sarah? Yeah, I think I think Dan's absolutely right. I think that what we have seen over the last two to three years is an increase almost across the board in hate-based violence and harassment. Uh, in the aftermath of the last election, the Southern Poverty Law Center found uh, hundreds of hate-based harassment and violent incidences occurring across the country in just the weeks after. We did a survey, the Human Rights Campaign did a survey of tens of thousands of, uh, of youth around the country, and they overwhelmingly reported an increase in bullying and harassment during the school day in the lead-up to and in the aftermath of the last election. Every single time you see uh, uh, Donald Trump and Mike Pence release another anti-LGBTQ policy, there's a spike in calls to suicide hotlines. We at the Human Rights Campaign released a report uh, documenting the last year in, in deaths within the transgender community. Some of those deaths are a result of, of explicit hate crimes. Others are very clearly a result of forces and, and, and discrimination and hatred conspiring to push people into circumstances where they're more likely to face violence. Uh, this year, uh, at least 22 transgender people have died um, through fatal violence. And I think to the steps that we can take, obviously there's a number of different steps legally that we can take in terms of more states passing inclusive hate crimes laws, in terms of law enforcement making sure that they're trained and able to interact competently with LGBTQ populations, because if you don't feel comfortable contacting or engaging with law enforcement, you're less likely to be safe from violence when it comes to um, securing their protection. Teachers and, and educators, I think, play a massive role in this. It's about making sure our schools are more welcoming, that we are nipping this in the bud because hate at the end of the day is is learned. And if we are creating more inclusive and welcoming schools, that will go a long way. While there have been some positive strides made and greater representation that we discussed earlier in our conversation. I also look at television and film and am heartened by the greater representation of LGBTQ people. For example, Love, Simon, about a young gay man. Uh, Queer Eye, I mean, if that's not a celebration of being gay and being human, I don't know what is. Also, you know, I would add to that list is Drag Race, which for 10 years has been the one place on TV where you could see working class gay guys, uh, gay guys who'd been to prison, non-native English speakers, immigrants who are gay guys, poor people who are gay guys, also gender nonconforming and trans people. Long live RuPaul. Yeah, long (laughs) live RuPaul. Because, you know, one of the criticisms that you hear of representations of queer people on television is they're all gay, white, upper middle class men. Uh And Drag Race for 10 years has been a place where you can see the real diversity of the gay male and not just the gay male community. And Pose, which has an incredible cast of so many trans folks of color, particularly black transgender women, people are being educated by the shows they're watching. For example, Boy Erased, I have yet to see that film, but it's all about conversion therapy. For so long, I remember actually covering stories 20 years ago on the Today Show and people talking about conversion therapy. I think even in the case of Matthew Shepard. It still goes on. It's still a problem. It, it, very much so, and one of the one of the actual few uh, areas of I think significant progress legislatively that we saw this past year was actually in more and more states passing 
protections for LGBTQ youth against the abusive practice known as conversion therapy. Do we have any sense of how many people are still in conversion therapy programs? You know, it's difficult to say for sure, but there are some studies that have documented uh, a a report by the um, uh, uh, UCLA uh, Williams Institute found that Roughly 700,000 LGBTQ Americans have been subjected to conversion therapy. And wow. that currently, they estimate roughly 20,000 LGBTQ youth are being subjected to conversion therapy around the Unbelievable. country. Unbelievable. And I get letters at my advice column every day from queer kids who were subjected to conversion therapy recently. I've heard from people just in the last week, one kid in the last week, who's currently seeing a therapist that his parents are compelling him to see who is attempting to do conversion therapy on him. Sarah, looking ahead, there's some positive things we can anticipate in 2019. Same-sex marriage will be legalized in Austria, Costa Rica, and Taiwan, and it will be the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So what are your thoughts on both of those things? Well, I think on the first point, I think it's a reflection of the fact that equality is on the march, not just here in the United States, but around the globe, that this is a global movement, that LGBTQ people exist in every corner uh, of this country and every part of the globe, and that we, in doing so, are opening hearts and changing minds, not just in uh, blue states, not just in the United States of America, but in countries around the world, and that equality is inevitable with hard work. I think this, the second point around this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. It's an important point for us to sit back and reflect on our progress. Because with all of the attacks we're seeing, it's easy to to get bogged down in the negativity. It's easy to lose sight of the horizon, and it's easy to forget just how far we've come. But the reality is, in 50 years, 50 years ago at the Stonewall Inn, if you were to have told the folks there, the transgender women of color, the gay patrons, what would come in the next five decades— it would have seemed so impossible that it would have been almost incomprehensible. And the fact that we have marriage equality in every corner of this nation, the fact that we have seen the proliferation of non-discrimination protections and protections against conversion therapy in so many places across this country, the fact that a young gay kid was able to go to sleep on a Friday night in June of 2015, having just seen the symbol of our country, the White House, light up like a rainbow— The fact that I get to meet young transgender kids who are doing what seemed impossible to me just 10 years ago, they are both living their truth and dreaming big dreams all at the same time, demonstrates how far we've come and that we have transformed impossibility into possibility into reality. And that is our challenge, to never be pacified by our progress, but to always recognize just how far we've come. We can't be complacent, though. We used to live in a country with the Voting Rights Act, and now we don't. You know, we secured— through the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, uh, abortion rights uh, as a fundamental constitutional right. That's been assailed and under attack and is pretty much non-operative or unoperative in many parts of the country. We have to defend our gains. Um, I'm not suggesting that, Sarah, you were suggesting that we rest on our laurels. And we should take moments to marvel at how far we've come because just recognizing the progress that you've made, you know, it inspires you to keep pushing to make more progress. But we also constantly have to fight a rearguard action in this country to defend the rights we've won. I also feel like the much maligned millennials are a real reason to hope. I see such a difference in attitude uh, among 
people in their 20s. My daughters were both 22 and 27. I mean, it is a— People in their 30s are millennials, too, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, sorry. But I really do see such a sea change in attitudes, such a generational difference. And I don't know about you, Dan and Sarah, but that gives me real hope. Does it you, Dan? It does. You know, sometimes I think about my own uh, nieces and nephews. Like, we're really dealing with the millennials, the first generation of adults who grew up with openly gay, openly lesbian, bi and trans friends and family members who were incorporated and welcomed uh, as themselves and entirely welcomed and loved and embraced by their families and their communities. That psychs me out, gives me hope, and it's a credit to all the people who came out when it wasn't easy or possible to be out or as out as people are able to be today. We wouldn't be here but for uh, the queers at Stonewall who picked up the bricks and threw them. And I think we need more people who stand up and not just within the community but outside the community, and I hope you know that you always have an ally in me and in Brian. So thank you both so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much, guys. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll speak with Jamel Bowie and Maria Inojosa about the year in race. That's right after this. America's changing, and along with those changes, a lot of people are facing huge financial challenges, Brian. So prudential and financial wellness expert Alexandra Drain are traveling across America to learn more about the changing financial landscape in a new project called The State of Us. Alexandra has devoted her career to inspiring people to lead healthier, happier, and more engaged lives. And over 20 years, she's consulted with leaders and influential thinkers all across the globe. You can join her as she partners with Prudential, and they travel across the country talking to people from the town with the longest lifespan to the town with the highest birth rate to the smallest town in America. Today, less than half of us believe we're on track to meet our financial goals, and the state of us is working to uncover the challenges that are getting in the way of financial wellness, and they're teaching us how to fight them. Because while our financial challenges may feel greater than previous generations, they are not insurmountable. So to learn more about the financial challenges facing our country, you can visit prudential.com slash state of us. That's prudential.com slash state of us. Now back to the podcast. For our last segment today, we're talking about what this year meant for race relations in the United States. Joining us for this conversation, Jamel Bowie and Maria Inahosa. Jamel is the chief political correspondent for Slate and a political analyst for CBS News. And he's also a UVA alum. God, (laughs) it's like we stacked the deck with Wahoos today. Anyway, we know Jamel is the real deal because he still lives in Charlottesville. Wow, now you're my third favorite UVA alum, Katie. Again, oh, my God. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. We're also speaking to Maria Inahosa, the longtime host and executive producer of the public radio show Latino USA. Maria also hosts a PBS show called Maria Inahosa One-on-One. She's won Emmys and Peabody's for her work. She's a very distinguished journalist. We began our conversation by talking about one of the biggest and most high-profile personalities of the year. Colin Kaepernick. Jamel, I'm curious about what you think Colin Kaepernick did in terms of advancing African Americans and some of the issues that we're facing in terms of race this year. 
Kaepernick does a fair amount of charity work, and he's been a vocal spokesperson advocate on issues of police brutality and police violence. But I think the more significant thing about Kaepernick is not so much what he has done and more the fact that he is the public face of this new Nike campaign. And I think it's significant um, because the brand, at least, believes that what Kaepernick stands for is likely to be the mainstream position, the mainstream politics uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future. Or the likely position of people who are buying Nike products, right? Exactly. I mean, I, were right. you surprised when that was announced, when suddenly we saw that portrait of Colin Kaepernick everywhere as the face of Nike? I was surprised because I do think it represents something of a risk. There will be some consumers, some people who will not want to purchase Nike products now that uh, Colin Kaepernick is the the face of the brand. But it is, I think, again, it's very significant. And I think that sends a signal or it may suggest where American culture is going and how perhaps five or 10 years down the road, what appears to be a divisive issue today is very likely not going to be as divisive um, in part because of the demographics of the country and where those are going. Let's talk about Serena Williams. She became a huge story when at the U.S. Open, she expressed her anger out on the tennis court. I don't cheat. I didn't get coaching. How can you say that? You owe me an apology. I have never cheated in my life. I have a daughter and I stand what's right for her and I've never cheated. And you owe me an apology. And the intersection of sports and gender, I think, was so clear with the Serena Williams incident. And Jamel, for you, as you watched the conversation, I remember watching that match, watching Serena, and just seeing it explode on social media. What struck you about not only what Serena did during the U.S. Open, but the reaction? I mean, I think the reaction um, to Williams's actions, and specifically from her defenders, I think shows the extent to which Serena Williams has almost transcended tennis as a uh, figure in popular culture that people, and, and I, I wasn't following it too closely, but I was following it closely enough to notice that uh, some of the people uh, who were vocally defending Serena Williams weren't even big tennis fans, but they were fans of her. They were fans of what she represents. Um, and they saw this as profound disrespect to a woman who arguably is the reason anyone cares about women's tennis in the first place. There is a sense in the reaction, sort of a how dare you disrespect this person uh, who has done a lot for the sport and who does a lot for us by virtue of what she represents and how she carries herself and um, uh, who she is. America Ferreira is another name, Marie, I think, who had really came out in a very sort of strong way about sexual harassment. She was a key figure in the Time's Up movement. She edited a book. How important was her high profile this year? You know, America did stand out because she's, you know, she's kind of everywhere. She's on television. She's writing the book. We all know she had a baby. You know, we're kind of following her. But America has been, she's been owning her voice for a while. So she was very prominent in the Hillary Clinton campaign. She was a very prominent activist for the Democratic Party and has been. 
And and in many ways, I, you're right. What she did in terms of Time's Up was that she was helping to make this beyond a movement. It was like, what do we stand for? Creating a whole legal defense and education fund, kind of really trying to understand how you tackle this from a strategic and structural place as opposed to just protest. So that's kind of America thinking really strategically. I think she also got a lot of street cred because I think for her, because she is Latino, talking about really expanding this whole movement outside of Hollywood and talking about people who are working on factory floors, who are working uh, in homes, who are working as clerks in stores. I mean, I feel like for whatever reason, that seemed to resonate in a way that didn't necessarily resonate when you looked at a white actress talking about these issues. Right, because what she was saying is, if you think about women being sexually harassed in Hollywood, think about the women who pick the grapes or the blueberries or the raspberries that you're eating. The bigger connection for me, though, Katie, is that um, what America kind of symbolizes in 2018 is the many, many, many Latinas who are owning their voice and owning their power. And we've all witnessed this, right? So, for example, there's that moment in the elevator with Senator Jeff Flake. On Monday, I stood in front of your office with Annie Barkin. I told the story of my sexual assault. I told it because I recognized in Dr. Ford's story that she's telling the truth. What you are doing is allowing someone who actually violated a woman to sit in the Supreme Court. That was Ana Maria Archila. Um, along I with interviewed Maria. her after that. Sure, we all did. We, yeah. we were all, you know, like, hey. And, and I've actually known Ana Maria for years because she gets to that point of being able to step in that elevator because of the fact that she's been trained as an activist because she's an immigrant rights activist. So you see how people are making the connection. She's taking on the issue of sexual violence, but she was trained as an activist because she's an immigrant rights activist. And her own story is so compelling, it's, too, what and, happened and to her when she was just five, five years, years old. years old, and, and she didn't speak about that for a long, long, long time. But like Ana Maria Archila, then you'd have to say, well, Emma Gonzalez. Emma Gonzalez from Parkland, who, you know, was leading the March for Our Lives. This is another young Latina who is changing the way we're thinking about politics. And then, of course, that ends up in the midterms with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and many other Latinas who are entering Congress. Latinas were making these, quote-unquote, intersectional connections. It's a difficult word, but we're making the connections between how we, who we are as Americans, who we are as as um, people engaged in American politics, in my view, as a as a journalist. And we're saying we have something very particular to bring and to add to the conversation. Well, Maria, you segued us very nicely from biggest names to biggest moments. And perhaps the biggest moment of the year was the midterm election. And Jamel, I'm curious about the role that you think race played. What's your assessment? Yeah, I think... The the story of race in these elections is a little complicated, and it's you can think of it from several different perspectives. The first was just the fact that the president kind of wrapped up his midterm message with um, fear mongering about a group of asylum seekers uh, heading for the United States border and referring to them as sort of this rapidly approaching threat that will overwhelm American borders and destroy communities and so on and so forth. And all of this was. Not true, and there's there's quite a bit of great journalism debunking the president, essentially. But I think the effect of that messaging, which I think you could accurately describe as, as race-baiting, 
um, ended up likely juicing enough rural turnout that the Republican Party could hold on or flip Senate seats uh, in Florida, uh, could win uh, in Indiana as well, could um, help beat Claire McCaskill in Missouri, and essentially keep the Senate from falling out of Republican hands. Now, in the end, you know, the uh, Republican Party began this Congress with 52 senators. It will end this Congress with 53 senators, so, um, or begin the next one with 53 senators. So the, the net effect um, wasn't that great, but it's still meaningful that the party was able to hold on to the Senate in the face of real Democratic energy and um, public discontent. So that, that's the first way I think race played a part in these elections. The, the second way is the fact that Democratic primary voters seem to have a real appetite for diverse candidates. And uh, I think most of the narrative around this has been in terms of women broadly as a class. But if you look just a little deeper, you see it's specifically women of color. And so Ocasio-Cortez in New York, uh, Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts, um, uh, Deb Holland, uh, Lauren Underwood in Illinois. And what's striking is they don't, necessarily represent majority uh, minority districts. Uh, Many of these candidates represent uh, majority white districts. The most racially tolerant whites are becoming Democrats, and the least racially tolerant whites are becoming Republicans. And this is reshaping the electorate along lines that aren't exactly even. It was very exciting for Latina women. With uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you have Veronica Escobar, Sylvia Garcia, and uh, by the way, a record 43 Latinos will be serving in Congress in 2019. So why such a change do you think this go-round? So Latinos and Latinas, it it looks like they kind of got the message. I've been very concerned because, you know, Katie, so the joke is, is that I'm I'm Mexican, so I have 16 jobs. <laughs> One of those 16 jobs is that I'm a professor, so I'm with young people. And I've been very concerned, feeling their kind of exasperation with the electoral politics. Um, and so I was very concerned about what was going to happen with the midterms because when with you— turnout? Yeah, in terms of turnout, because if you are consistently attacked— Does that make you feel like, okay, let me go and vote? And I do think that one of the big stories of this moment is, and if you look at Texas as an example, the Latino-Latina turnout in Texas and the activism around, uh, you know, whether it was for for Beto O'Rourke or for the other Latinas and Latinos who got elected from the state of Texas, everybody had been saying, you know, when is it going to happen? With, when When is it going to happen in terms of Latino-Latina turnout? Well, I think we're seeing it in real life. And Jamel, before we wrap up our discussion of the midterm elections, we also saw two huge stars in the Democratic Party, both African-Americans, uh, run and lose races for governor just by a hair. Uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum in Florida, allegations of voter suppression around both races— Where do you think we go from here in terms of those two individuals as well as sort of the the broader challenge of making sure that everyone who wants to vote gets their vote counted? Well, as far as those two individuals is concerned, I think they both have very bright futures. Um, Gillum in particular – went from being the mayor of Tallahassee, which is a small thing, to being a nationally known gubernatorial candidate and did so almost by surprise. He won his primary uh, striking victory from behind that no one really saw coming. And he 
came closest to winning a gubernatorial race as a Democrat in Florida uh, since uh, the 2000s. And so although he lost his race, the Florida electorate also repealed uh, felon disenfranchisement for most uh, felons in the state. And so that's 1.4 million additional people added to uh, in the pool of potential voters. And you can imagine uh, in 2022, uh, a concerted effort to get some portion of those people registered and ready to vote for a second run from Gillum. So I don't think this is the last we've seen of him. Abrams, likewise, and, and I'll say, I think, you know, Abrams ended her race with a concession speech that wasn't really a concession speech. It was a speech essentially saying that this was not a fair election, that my opponent, who served as Secretary of State for Georgia, responsible for administering elections, did everything he can, both in this election and in prior cycles, to remove people from the ballot, and specifically people who vote for Democrats. Hundreds of thousands of people were moved from the rolls uh, over the course of just a few years, um, far more than you would expect given just population change. The case Abrams made to her voters and to the public at large was that something needs to be done about this. And instead of you know slinking into the night, I'm going to use my campaign infrastructure. I'm going to use my connections in Georgia politics. I'm going to use my past organization building to spearhead an effort to reverse these attempts to restrict access to the ballot. And so I think Abrams will very much be in not just Georgia politics, but national politics for the foreseeable future or for the near future. And I think her approach to this, I think, will be replicated in other states by other Democrats. Let's step out of politics and talk about a, a few other key moments that happened this year. I'm reminded of Papa John's CEO, John Schnatter, stepping down after using the N-word during a training call and Megyn Kelly talking about blackface uh, and Halloween costumes and summarily being fired for those comments. And yet, Jamel, one of Donald Trump's biggest applause lines is to attack political correctness. And I saw a poll recently in which a significant number of Democrats bemoaned the rise of political correctness. Do you think that we've overreacted to some of the bad words or even bad deeds that people in public life have have made? Or do you think that this whole movement is kind of a, an appropriate uh, step and reaction to abuses that have gone on for far too long? The interesting thing about that political correctness poll was that, and I think it showed something like 80% of Americans didn't like political correctness, but didn't define political correctness. And so it's this very vague definition of a somewhat vague term um, that has a negative connotation. But having said that, I think that behavior by individual people in society follows norms, follows elite signals, follows larger you know, political culture. And a political culture in which open bigotry doesn't receive any particular sanction, I think can create a situation where down the line people feel more comfortable expressing forms of bigotry. And I think, you know, one consequence of of the election of President Trump has been that in American society that people have become 
more open to voicing racially biased uh, opinions, um, other kinds of bigoted opinions, because, you know, the president of the United States uh, voices them too. And uh, there has been an uptick in uh, biased crimes uh, against Jewish Americans, against Black Americans, against immigrants, against LGBT Americans. And so these things are real, right? Like this isn't, it isn't the case that people are getting offended over uh, irrelevant or trivial things. So one of the most horrifying moments or stories this year was the forced separation of migrant kids from their parents at the border. And the deadline has now passed to reunite children with their parents, but there are still hundreds of families who have not been reunited. Um, Maria and Jamel, you've both reported on this story. Will the Trump administration ever successfully fix the problem that they've created here? So this is not a a problem that is only a problem to the Trump administration. In other words, what we have to recognize is that children have been being taken from their families um, at the border for a long time. In fact, if you kind of do a pullback, I'm just going to go really, really wide historically for you guys because I needed to do this myself to kind of understand. And children were being taken from their parents as Africans because we were told in this country that they were property. Native children were taken away because we they were seen as uneducated or savage. Um, Children were taken from their parents um, when they were put into so-called internment camps. So the uptick in terms of immigration was something that, you know, under the Trump administration has taken a different turn. So zero tolerance, um, you know, created by this administration and by Jeff Sessions um, was all about that, exactly, zero tolerance, and we will take your children, and that's going to be an act of punishment. I think one of the things that was really horrifying for me to hear was when I was down reporting, actually, (laughs) about a Latino man who runs the shelters where these children are being placed, and our story on Latino USA was, you know, the moral dilemma of Juan Sanchez. You know, he's sheltering these children, but he's also making a profit off of doing this. And um, the fact that, that we have to recognize that there is a different way of looking at this. We're talking about family separation. That's a very scientific, clinical way to talk about children being ripped out of the arms of their parents. So I I do think, though, that this moment of seeing children in cages, of hearing those cries, this is something that will not be forgotten in 2018. Um, And I do think that we will see what happens in terms of the presidential elections. But Immigration actually didn't used to be the most important issue for a lot of people. This president has actually made it one of the most important issues, and not necessarily because people want to build a wall, but because now they care about what's happening. And that that may be, as we say in Spanish, le salió el tiro por la culata, which is like it backfired on Donald Trump. People care now because he's kind of exposed how brutal it can be. Are there still children who remain separated from their parents? Because the news cycle is so fast, I feel that that story has come and gone and people are no, not there, reminded. There are, no, 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 there are. And what's different now is that um, we have 14,000 children right now being held by this government, uh, immigrant children. Some of those children came on their own. In other words, the parents 
couldn't even afford to come themselves and simply said to their kids in the kind of Sophie's Choice, go, go and find safety. So some of those are those kids. Others are children who are still being separated. So we have more children now being held by this government who are immigrants than at any other time. And one of the reasons why they continue to be held is because when family members want to come and take the children, family members who are undocumented have been picked up by ICE when they're trying to come and pick up these children, that's we have to open our eyes to how horrific this kind of the ICE industrial complex has become. But it seems to me immigration reform is really necessary because you do kind of understand that you can't have completely porous it's borders, completely right? Necess- it's completely necessary. And to the me, problem it's just now sort of just... so crazy. Like, come up with a plan that works and some kind of process that works— and some kind of humane way to treat people who are seeking asylum. I mean, it just seems like a big mess, Maria. It does. It is a big mess. And and sadly, Donald Trump, because of his rhetoric, this, this has really made it feel like a, a police state for uh, undocumented immigrants and for many immigrants. Um, but it didn't start with him. It was President Bill Clinton who signed these laws into effect in 1996. They were ramped up under George W. Bush. President Obama could have done immigration reform in the first 100 days when they had the House and the Senate. He chose not to. And President Barack Obama, a constitutional lawyer, was overseeing the massive deportation of more people than any other president in history. So it is a collective responsibility. It is on everyone's shoulders. But sadly, it has gotten incredibly worse under the Trump administration. Do you think, uh, Jamel, in 2019, we'll see Congress try to tackle this, or will it basically never be dealt with? I mean, I think there's certainly an appetite among um, Democratic lawmakers, some newly elected Democratic lawmakers, to um, craft a humane solution to the problem of uh, people living in the United States who do not have documentation. And I think it's sort of important to frame that as being kind of the, the grand issue of immigration reform. Border crossings are at an all-time low, right? And even there, there hasn't even been a significant increase in asylum seekers. We have sort of uh, procedures for asylum seekers that aren't being overwhelmed. Um, uh, they, they, they are orderly. Um, the sense that the border is somehow being besieged by um, sort of large numbers of asylum seekers and immigrants is something President Trump likes to put forth to help his political agenda, but doesn't really reflect the truth of the situation. What we do have are 10, 11 uh, million people in the United States who do not have documentation, um, who have uh, stable lives, who have jobs, who have families, and uh, most Americans believe that they should uh, have some pathway to legal status and citizenship. And that is the issue. Um, and while there, I think there is a consensus among Democrats about trying to create a path to citizenship for those people, there isn't a consensus among Republicans. And as long as that's the case, the only hope for getting some sort of comprehensive immigration reform is if Democrats once again hold a trifecta of the House, the Senate, and the White House. To me, the connection has to be kind of, because I was thinking about language and hate speech and, you know, kind of political correctness. You know, the word illegal to refer to a human being is something that has been, it's kind of normalized in our country. For a lot of people, myself included, that feels like hate speech. Um, And, you know, the person who taught me never to refer to a human being as illegal was Elie Wiesel, survivor of a Holocaust. He said, 
never refer to a human being as illegal. That is the first thing that the Nazis did. If you're calling them illegal, then you're dehumanizing them. Then their lives don't really matter. Then they themselves are an illegal entity. Then it's okay if you're housing them like this. Then it's okay if you're taking away their children. Then it's okay if you're separating and ripping up families. I know it feels really small, but in some ways, part of what we can do to lessen the fear of this moment is, in fact, to think about the words. So looking ahead to 2019, to to wrap things up, Jamel and Maria, what would you like to see happen? And are you optimistic any of it will? I am incredibly optimistic right now because I feel like after these midterms, we have seen something that I feel like there's hope for American democracy. We're not going anywhere, none of us, right? And so in that sense, um, I'm hopeful that people feel very alive. They feel very woke, if you will, and um, and they feel engaged. And that is something that you can't put a dollar sign on, right? That is something that we are all living and experiencing. It's been a really challenging 2018. But I think the other side of it is that people are saying, boy, we're tired, but we're not staying quiet. And that's what a democracy looks like. And that's that's wonderfully exciting. What I think will be interesting will be to see how our public conversations around race and racism and bias are different when you have a new sort of generation of young leaders of color um, able to jump into the mix and make their voices heard. Uh, one thing that I remain astounded by is uh, uh, incoming uh, rep uh, Alexandria Cadio cortezs ability to sort of command media attention um, and to to make her, to insert herself into the conversation uh, and drive it in a particular direction. And as if with, with voices like her in the mix, and others, um, I think some of the you know cultural and political flashpoints of the past two years will play out very differently uh, next year, um, just by virtue of the fact that there are different kinds of people with different kinds of priorities and interests uh, responding to them. So that'll be interesting to watch. I don't know how how it will play out, but it'll it'll be very interesting to watch. And as you said, people like Stacey Abrams being out of the mix, but staying in the mix, right? Right. You know, making sure that these issues don't recede, but they stay in the forefront. Um, And I do think, I said it earlier when we had a conversation about the LGBTQ community, this younger generation is not going to tolerate a lot of things. And I think that's very heartening. They're going to keep the conversation going and keep attention on some of these issues. And they're going to be like a dog with a bone. They're not going to let it go. Jamel and, and Maria, thank you all for coming to our podcast and discussing the state of race relations, as complicated and broad as that topic is. But certainly a lot has happened this year. And I think a lot of consciousness has been raised and people are more woke than ever, as they say. And I think that's a good thing. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That does it for us today, Brian. The podcast Dream Team is producer Emma Morgenstern, associate producer Nora Ritchie, and audio engineer Jared O'Connell. 
Special thanks to Brendan Burns at Earwolf LA for recording me, as well as Jamal Milner. A special thanks to Beth DeMaz, my assistant, Julia Lewis, the social media prodigy, and Jen Brown, (laughs) who helps us book guests here on the podcast. Jared Arnold composed our theme music. You can find me on Twitter at GoldsmithB. And Katie continues to be an influencer (laughs) of epic proportions on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and especially Instagram, as what else? Katie Couric. Don't forget Snap. If you have thoughts about the show or questions for us, please reach out. Our email address is comments at currickpodcast.com, or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 929-224-4637. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. This podcast is happily sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection, like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Little Passports, it's the perfect holiday gift for that curious kid on your list. With a subscription to Little Passports, kids get a fun-filled package every month designed to inspire their curiosity in things like geography, world cultures, or science. Little Passports is great for kids of all ages. Order today for holiday delivery at littlepassports.com slash katie. That's littlepassports.com slash katie. Stitcher. I'm just talking about uh, that. Are I you in the there. Beehive? The Beehive. Listen, I was I'm there. From oh, it's the Beehive, not yeah. the Beehive. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's Beyonce. Beyonce. Uh, yeah, I yeah. get it. But, but they call her Bay, though, right? Yeah. Some people do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't okay. think people, <laughs> the people I follow call her Bay. <laughs> you call her Bay. Kitty Curry no, calls no, her Bay. No, 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 no. Hello, Deadbeats. It's Gabby. Gabby Dunn, host of Bad With Money. I had the Bad With Money book come out in January. I'm super stoked for season four. This season, we're going back to our roots, and I'm having long conversations with amazing people and getting the big picture about money and the economy. Do you like intersectional, queer, social justice-based money podcasts? This is the only one, so get into it. Did you earn it? Do you deserve to be like a billionaire when somebody who's working as a janitor or working in Walmart or, or you know, a teacher working, or a teacher? Yeah, certainly. Or a teacher who may be working just as many hours as you, maybe just as smart as you. Like, is does that make it OK that you have so much? I get paid once a month. So my, my checking account's huge. It's like a tidal wave comes in. And then on the second, it's empty again. <laughs> oh, my God. Just speaking my language. Bad With Money is back now for season four. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Theodore Roosevelt explored uncharted Amazon territory, helped modernize American football, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Erin McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and the host of History Versus, a new podcast that shares the inside stories behind some of history's ultimate fighters. Season one tackles Theodore Roosevelt, who went head-to-head with seemingly unbeatable foes like corruption, time, and death itself. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.